The Old Testament text is taken from the book of Psalms. It's the 30th Psalm. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I think some of you know that I spent about a decade uh, involved in urban ministry in Boston, and during those years I spent a lot of time with people on the street. Before that, I actually worked in a rescue mission in Kansas City. Uh, consequently, I, I, I saw a lot of folks during those years who were bound to their addictions. They were, they were people who were suffering, um, and uh, really, uh, very often, um, were engaged in really self-destructive act- actions. Um, and very often, they knew that. They recognized that this was the case, uh, but they just couldn't break free. These things that had a hold of them really had tight grip. Um, I know the language of addiction uh, puts this in sort of a medical framework, and that's fine. But uh, one of the problems with that framework is it gives us a sense that uh, we're not actually involved and our wills are not actually at work in the whole process. It's true that our wills can be taken possession of by our desires, really evil desires at times that are destructive in character. Nevertheless, uh, we can exercise our wills for at least the act of saying, God, please help me. Um, But one of the things that you see in in that world, and really not just in that world, but life in general, is that sometimes, very often is the case, really, in I think every case, there's a sense in which we have to hit bottom. There's got to be a point at which we uh, find ourselves kind of living uh, in the uh, sort of the, the pool of uh, consequences that we have uh, created for ourselves and look up at that point and cry out and say, God, help me. I can't help myself. I need you to deliver me. Deliver me from me. Now, some people uh, have a tendency to bounce. I don't know if you've noticed this. Some, there are people who just never seem to actually hit bottom. They just keep bouncing along the bottom. Uh, they hit bottom, and then they rebound a little bit, and you think, oh, well, okay, that's good. They're moving on to another phase of life, and then they hit bottom again. 
And it's sort of like one of those super rubber balls. It just doesn't seem to ever come to rest. It's just bump, 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 bump. And it's like, is there, is there ever going to be a point where this comes to an end? Um, during those years in Boston, uh, I was involved in the lives of several people, and two of the people that come to mind are Rod and Jim. Um, they both were people who tended to bounce along the bottom. One had a happy ending to his story, and the other's story didn't end happily at all. Jim was a painter, I mean a house painter, and he was a very gifted house painter, very, very fast. He was from the islands. He was from Trinidad. He had that delightful accent that people from Trinidad have, and he was a gifted athlete. He had played semi-pro soccer, uh, but the, at the point that I got to know uh, Jim, he was a crack addict. And Jim uh, came to live with us for about six to eight months, so Marla and I were host to a crack addict. And uh, every once in a while, uh, he would liberate some of our property, <laughs> kind of feed his addiction. One day I came home, there was no microwave. Another day I came home, there was no bike. You know, things just sort of disappeared. And then Jim would be full of remorse, full of self-condemnation. He, he felt so bad. He was so easy to forgive. <laughs> he, he was really very sincere. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, these passions had him in their grip. Uh, the Kind of the story, at least in terms of our relationship with Jim, came to an end when he stole the church offering. I said, Jim, that's it. You know, microwaves, bikes, okay, church offering, I think you've crossed the line, you need to get out. The good news is Jim's story ended well. He went back to the islands, got involved in church, and all the way along he was praying and asking God for help. I remember one of the things he loved to say is, prayers works, prayers works. And uh, I could even see, you know, the evidence of God's grace in his life over those years that he was with us, even though, you know, he was in the grip of this powerful, controlling addiction. Rod's story didn't end so well. Rod uh, was, a, was a student, uh, really kind of a virtuoso. He, he uh, was a student at Berkeley School of Music. He was sort of a jazz pianist and... He could just compose music uh, just, you know, uh, at whim. He composed some theme music for our church, uh, which was really hopping and cool. And I uh, played uh, for, you know, our services and gave them a real uh, unique character uh, because of his uh, artistry on the keyboard. Uh, but uh, his life kind of came apart because of a disappointing experience that he had with Buddy Rich. Buddy Rich, the famous drummer. I don't know if you remember Buddy. But there was a big event, and Buddy was, uh, that was, was being hosted at Berkeley School of Music. And so Rob was supposed to be the, on the piano, and he showed up for, for the event. But he hadn't gotten word that it was black tie, and he showed up in a white uh, blazer and some, uh, I think, you know, green pants or something. You know, you know how jazz musicians dress. Buddy Rich just gave him the eye. Uh, as he went into the concert hall, and he could feel the condemnation of that drummer the entire time. He knew that that ruined his prospects. What he thought was the big breakthrough moment in his life became the end of his career. He ended up on the street not long after that and uh, got involved in a whole range of things that really took over his life. And, And he and I had a couple of confrontations, and I'm afraid I had to put him on the street at one point. He kept sneaking into the church, stealing things. 
And I said, that's it, Rod, you're gone. Within a year, he was dead. Grip of sin had taken a hold of him, and it just destroyed him. So we're not talking about things that we should at all treat in a lighthearted manner. These are serious matters, and I imagine that a number of you know people that uh, you can think of that maybe the stories of Jim and Rod remind you of. The good news is that God really can change us and get a hold of us, but often it's after we've hit, and bot- we've hit bottom, we find ourselves in Sheol. Now here, you know, we can think about Sheol as a, an actual place where the dead go, but we can also think of it metaphorically, and I think that's what we see here in both, case, in both cases or in both uh, expressions. In one sense, um, we see David describing his situation as though he were among the living dead. And that's often what you find with people who are living on the street. Uh, there's a kind of living death that they experience. They're cut off from life. I remember, you know, my naivete as I started working with people on the street, I'd ask them, you know, because we use this term, the homeless. And what I discovered is that the vast majority of these people had homes. Uh, they just were not welcome in them. And the reason they weren't welcome in them is because they did things like steal the microwave. <laughs> and uh, so that leads to a, an invitation to depart, to be cut off. And these people were cut off because of the sin that had taken control of their lives. But one of the things that I learned during those years working with people uh, on the street is that pride, pride is remarkable uh, in this respect. You don't have to have a good reason to be proud. Some of the proudest people I've ever met had no reason to be proud. Nevertheless, pride is delusional. It's uh, irrational in character. You don't actually need a reason to be proud to be proud. Um, And consequently, there's a sense in which uh, a person who uh, is dead in their trespasses and sins but thinks they're really living is delusional in this sense. It's also true that a person who takes great pride in their ability to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps very often cannot. And it's when you come to that realization that you really can't help yourself that you're able to say with the psalmist here, with David, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. Why are we so slow to cry out to God? I think sometimes we might try to bargain with God. I know that's what I you know, did over the course of my life at different points in time. There was a, there was a you know, this glass case that I would break in case of emergency, prayer. <laughs> that would be the only time I'd think about it, and then I'd try to... To, to you know, cut a deal with God, make a bargain with Him, but even in the act of, our, uh, of attempting to bargain with God, what I was holding on to was this unreasonable pride that uh, didn't acknowledge that I needed God to, to really get a hold of my life and do for me what I couldn't do for myself. One of the things that's worth doing if you're into this sort of thing in terms of word studies and scripture is note how God treats His friends. People in the Bible who are called friends of God, um, they can lead some rough lives. (laughs) They can get some rough treatment. God treats his friends in a very uh, rough way at times. 
In fact, I think one of the ways that we can characterize a person who really knows God is that person tends to walk with a limp. Remember that episode with Jacob and the, and the angel? Remember, you know, he's afraid to go home. He's afraid to face the music. He's afraid to face his brother Esau. Why? Because he ripped him off. That's why. <laughs> he had good reason to fear seeing his brother again. His violent brother, whose name was Red, because he was a bloody man and a man of the field, a man who was a commander of men. And he was afraid of what that welcome would be like when he finally got home. And so in the middle of the night, you know how it feels in the middle of the night when your fears get a hold of you and your blood runs cold and you start to sweat. That moment is when the angel appeared. And Jacob wrestled with the angel, the messenger of God, who in some remarkable way we can say was God. And Jacob had the temerity uh, to say, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I will not let you go unless you bless me. He was that desperate, holding on to God, praying for a miracle. And God said, okay, your hip goes out of joint. And then I'm going to give you a new name. Your old name was Jacob, the heel grabber, the deceiver, the tricky guy. Your new name is Israel, Prince of God. But after that, he walked with a limp. He, uh, the evidence that he had had an encounter with God was the fact that he could no longer run. He was a good runner. Up to that moment, he was always on the run. But after that, he couldn't run anymore. God's friends walk with limps. How suddenly things can change, too. Did you notice in the course of this psalm how quickly things change? Mid-sentence, you go from the top to the bottom. The, uh, the psalm itself can be described as a prayer uh, with a sermon in the middle. <laughs> if you look at it, you know, in the first three verses, David is addressing God. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. And then he turns to us as we look on. And he says, hey, people. This is what you need to remember. And then he goes back to the Lord. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. But in the middle of this uh, address to the Lord, he's describing his own situation. He says there in verse 6, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Have you ever been there? Bank accounts fat. On good terms with everybody. Things are going great. New, new car, new suit. Prospects are marvelous. You know, in that moment, you can say with, with David, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. And then what happens? By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. Mid-sentence, you hid your face. I was dismayed. That quick, things can change. Things can change in your life. You can go from the top to the bottom that quick. The vicissitudes of life, that's what we find ourselves experiencing you ever see old athletes on television? I mean, beat up, injured, drug abusing, broke athletes, and then you remember what they were like in their prime? You say, what happened? What happened to that guy? He went from the top to the bottom like that. That can happen to you. That can happen to me. Life is like that. We can find ourselves on the top and then find ourselves on the bottom in four short words. Look at verse 7. You hid your face. 
You hid your face. When God hides his face, what happens? Our lives go dark. When God hides his face, we don't enjoy God's favor. He says, at that point, I was dismayed. I discovered at that moment uh, what things are really like and what I'm really like. The word countenance, the word countenance, it's an old-fashioned word, and we use it for uh, the face. A person's countenance is that person's face or that person's expression. It literally means to contain. So when we're talking about God's face here, we're talking about God's favor somehow expressed through his face, but that favor uh, is hidden in a moment, like a cloud going over the face of the sun. And in those moments when God's face is hidden from us, as I noted before, our hearts are pierced, our blood runs cold, we experience night sweats, we wonder what's going to become of ourselves or our lives or what have you. And there's a paradoxical apocalypse that occurs. The word apocalypse uh, means unveiled or unveiling. And at that moment, when God hides his face, we see ourselves as vulnerable and weak and subject to the vicissitudes of life and just sort of balanced on the precipice. But we do have one bargaining chip at that moment. It's a remarkable bargaining chip, and uh, you see David pull it out here and play it. He says there in verse 9, get this, it just makes you smile in, in a way because it's just so real. What profit is there in my death? (laughs) What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? That's your only chip. The only one you got. I'll say thank you. (laughs) That's what you got. Everything else has been given to you by God, and even that has been given to you by God. When God delivers you, he gives you the occasion to say thank you, to praise his name, to glorify him. It's your only bargaining chip. Learn how to play it. (laughs) Learn to use it. Will God deliver me? Because if you deliver me, I'll be able to tell other people that you're a good God who delivers those in need. Help me, Lord. Help me. It's my only... It's the only thing I have to say. We're told here at the end something remarkable in verse 12. Did you catch it? It says there that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. I think that a lot of folks think of uh, glorifying God as kind of a zero-sum game. The more credit God gets, the less credit we get. And so consequently, they're stingy. I don't want to praise the Lord too much then because if I do, that means I get less credit. It's sort of like, you know, oh, who is that bicyclist? That, uh, Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong. I may, I may have used this story before. If I have, forgive me, but it's a good one. It's a good one because it's such a bad example. Uh, Lance Armstrong, of course, won uh, the Tour de France several times. Some of those times, cheating, (laughs) we know that now. He vociferously denied the accusations that he was a cheater. And there was a point in one of the press conferences where somebody brought up the fact that he had some God-given abilities. And he said, "Uh, why don't you thank God for your accomplishments? And he said, thank God? I'm the one who did the work. How the mighty has been brought low. (laughs) 
right? Everything he had, he'd been given. Even the intelligence that he misused to cheat. Everything we have, we've been given. The fool believes that God is praised at our expense. We actually are enriched when we glorify God. We're told that in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question, which is the chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him forever. We find ourselves in the glory of God. We're like daisies in the field. When the sun is covered by the cloud, things go dark. But when the cloud passes, the light shines down, there's a radiance to the field. And the faces that look up reflect the glory that is beaming down. And that's you and that's me. Our glory is borrowed. It's reflected back. And when we are glorified, it's because in some sense we're participating in God's glory given to us. The world is the theater of God's glory. Have you thought about that? The theater of the glory of God. There's a great line in Shakespeare and As You Like It. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. Of course, that's the beginning of a soliloquy that has a depressing sort of, you know, sort of tone. But we can take it in a different direction. We can say that that's true. And the question is, is what kind of story does the life that we lead tell? Is it a tragic tale? Is it a, com- is it a comedy? Tragic tales, of course, end badly for all involved. Everybody on stage is dead at the end. And that's when it's time to head for the exits. Why anybody would want to see a movie like that, I don't know. But there are a number of uh, plays and stories that end that way. Comedy, of course, ends happily. And uh, we're given the sense that this is the way it can work. Look back at verse 5. We're told there uh, in the first part of the, of the verse, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night. In other words, weeping may visit you. You might find the occasion to weep, but it's only for the night. But joy comes in the morning. Someday there's going to be a great getting up morning. There's a great way of talking about the resurrection uh, morning that way. We see that in, in some of the great spirituals and hymns of the church. Everything is transformed. In the twinkling of an eye, everything changes. There's a term that J.R. Tolkien coined for this sort of thing, and it's, the term is catastrophe. Usually when you hear the term catastrophe, you think the worst. You know, earthquake, hurricane, tornado, plague. <laughs> catastrophe, right? You is the Greek prefix for good. It's like when you have a eulogy at a funeral, it's good words about the departed. That's what it means. You catastrophe is the sudden joyous turn. When all seems dark and people have given up hope, something happens, the light breaks through, and everything is transformed in the twinkling of an eye. That's what we as Christians look forward to. And we have a reason to do that because of the resurrection. I keep harping on the resurrection, don't I? Well, yeah. (laughs) The resurrection changes everything. Lots of rabbis have been crucified. Only one was raised. Let that sink in. 
The one who was raised is the one who is ascended and is now seated at the right hand. And, and Tolkien, in his, his essay, was actually originally an address that he gave at a college uh, on fairy stories, ends his, uh, his talk with the greatest eucatastrophe of all, the story of Christ. Let me read to you from his address. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. This story begins and ends in joy. It is preeminently the inner consistency of reality, or it has that. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true, and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits, including his friend C.S. Lewis. For the art of it has the supremely convincing tone of primary art, that is, of creation. To reject it lies either to sadness or to wrath, but to accept it is joy. C.S. Lewis wrote a, an autobiography, and that autobiography was Surprised by Joy. I pray that that's true for you, that you have been surprised by joy. And if you've not been surprised by joy yet, that you will be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for the joy that we see reflected in it. I pray, Lord, that that joy will be reflected in our own lives, that we'll be able to enjoy your approval, your smiling face, and know that uh, we have been blessed because we know you and have glorified you. In Christ's name, amen.